Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning. I feel like I'm a throwback uh, preacher today because I think Josh used to do the laptop back in the day and you've graduated to the iPad, so I wanted to bring back the laptop, maybe show it off a little bit. I got it for Christmas, so I'm enjoying Yeah. Well, good morning. I, I, I know a lot of you, but if I don't know you, I am Chandler, and my wife, Kelly, and I, uh, we've been married for seven years, just a little bit about us. Uh, going on year seven in June, we're going to have a baby in August, August 15th. And I, I told Kelly on the drive over that when I mentioned that, Gillian is going to scream really loud, and I think I nailed it. So... We're very excited. Uh, I'm a videographer by trade. I do that nine to five, but I also study Bible and theology, and I serve here at Banner Church. So that's, that's who I am. I'm glad to be here. Kelly and I have never had a, another home church, except for one year we were in Thailand, and we called International Christian Assembly our home church. But as a couple, like, Banner is it, and we love it. So it's not just, like, a privilege to speak. Of course it is, but it's also a pleasure because I know you guys, and I love you guys, and I care about you, and I know you care about me. So this is awesome. And to add the cherry on top of that, I actually believe that you guys are super hungry for God here. And so... If I'm going to preach a word from the Word of God, I'm confident that you guys have ears to hear and want to hear it. And I think today that'll be especially important just because it's a bit of a tough topic. It's not a scary topic. It's, it's a, an empowering topic, but it, it's empowering through humility. Learning what is humility, not just in your attitude, but in your action. And Jesus has some really great word, uh, words and, and a great uh, illustration and parable to teach us in the book of Luke about what it means to really be a humble person. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you'll not be surprised at all to learn that we're going to learn about this through the context of a meal. Because the, the series we're going through is, what's the name of the series? Meals with Jesus. That's right. And we've been looking at what Jesus' practices of hospitality and fellowship demonstrate about his values. So Jesus doesn't just eat to eat. Jesus likes to eat to hang out with people. And not just to hang out with people, but to get to know people and love them. Thank you very much. Hospitality. That's 101 right there. Very good. Learned that from Jesus, I'm sure. Um, so Jesus' practices of hospitality, they demonstrate his values, what he cares about, what he believes about people, what he believes about their relationship to him. And in Scripture, it's really important to get the idea who are the sorts of people that Jesus associates with. Who does he break bread with? And we find that even though Jesus is an important religious figure, he actually dines in with the outcast. Was that a good one? <laughs> Even though he's Lord, he came to serve people. Even though he came on account of our sins, he actually offers fellowship and forgiveness to all people. And so he is a walking contradiction, but in the best way possible, a walking paradox. He is full of truth and yet full of mercy. And so when he sits at table with us, we listen because we know that he's speaking for our good. But we can say that because we, we know Jesus, right? But the New Testament makes something, something surprising abundantly clear, and it's this. Even though Jesus offers his fellowship to all people, we find that not everyone actually enjoys his company. There's a group of people who receive Jesus gladly on his terms, and that's great. But then there's another group of people who are constantly questioning Jesus, and they're skeptical of his terms. And what is the key difference between these two types of people? It's not a matter of, of sex or race or ethnicity. It's the difference between people who choose to humble themselves and people who choose to exalt themselves. So today we're going to look at a bit of a, a case study. Think of it as like an object lesson. We're going to ask, ask the question together. When Jesus sits down at a meal with those who exalt themselves, what sort of lesson is on his mind to teach them. Unless we think that we are much better than people who exalt themselves, what lesson can we learn from the lesson that they learn? And I hope by the end of our time, I will have helped you by, by God's grace together, we'll clearly understand what Jesus meant by true humility 
and how to apply that, not only in our attitude toward God, although that's first, but I think very practically, what are our actions toward others that reflect a true spirit of humility? Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word and that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's breathed out by God in order to empower us to live new lives. If we are in Christ, we are new creatures, and yet we're being sanctified and made more like Christ degree by degree, day by day. And we need your spirit today, God, to teach us to learn true humility, that we would humble ourselves rather than exalt ourselves. I pray that you give me the grace to speak clearly, that your word would shine in the hearts and minds of these people here whom you love. I pray, Lord God, that you would enlighten us and empower us to love more like you loved and continue to love us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So what's our context? What book have we been going through over this past series? Which gospel? The gospel of Luke. And there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell a single historical account about Jesus, but from different perspectives and with different emphases. They all tell one true story, but each one of those writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're going to have their own, I guess, um, favorite things to talk about, their own favorite motifs or themes. And if there's one theme that I think sets apart the gospel of Luke from the rest of the, three, the other three gospels, it's his emphasis on the exaltation of the humble. Thematically, the exaltation of the humble is the distinct fingerprint of Luke's gospel. If you met Luke, you would ask him, how's your dissertation on the exaltation of the humble going? Luke is fascinated with the lowly. Luke is enthralled with the meek. And it's only in the book of Luke that we get a series of really unique stories that, for whatever reason, they're so famous because they're in a gospel, right? But we forget they're only in Luke. They're not in Matthew, Mark, or John. It's only in the book of Luke that we hear about a barren woman named Elizabeth who's advanced in years and who miraculously conceives and gives birth to John the Baptist. It's only in the book of Luke that it's not the wise men, but lowly, humble shepherds who receive an angelic announcement of Jesus' birth. The wise men don't even appear in the book of Luke. It's only in Luke that the prophet Isaiah is quoted as saying, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. It's only in Luke that Jesus tells the people in the synagogue, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. It's only in Luke that we have the parable of the Good Samaritan who shows friendship to a man beaten down and left for dead by the wayside. And so it's in this thematic context, the mighty brought down, the humble exalted, valleys filled, mountains laid low, good news preached, not to the rich, but to the poor. It's in this thematic context that we're talking about, uh, a, that this passage that we're talking about today is entering into. The account of Jesus at a wedding banquet with some high and mighty Pharisees. So I think we should pay really close attention to the way in which Luke is trying to tie together the narrative threads that are uniquely his thing, the exaltation of the humble, and distilling that narrative thread into a very clear ethical teaching. He's taking narrative and turning it into precept. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's go to Luke 14. We're going to start with verses 1 through 6. We're going to park there for a little bit. If you don't have your Bible... It will also be on the screens. Let's read together. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him, that is Jesus, carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Okay, let's park here in these six verses for a bit. These verses are going to set the stage for a, a larger narrative in a moment. But the setting here is crucial. The setting is a meal 
at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, a very important person. It's a banquet, and at this banquet, we're introduced to a series of key characters. You've got, firstly, Jesus. You know him, you love him, you literally can't live without him. Secondly, the Pharisees and lawyers. And thirdly, the man with dropsy. Okay, side note, dropsy is a word that we don't really use anymore, but someone who's got dropsy is basically, they're swollen with fluid all throughout their body. So we've got Jesus, the Pharisees, and a man with great need and no social standing. You're not getting into parties or banquets if you're a man with dropsy unless there's a special purpose for your being there. So those are the three main people here in the first six verses. And quickly, we learn a whole lot about the core desires of all three of these people. And by understanding their core desires in these first few verses, we can better understand the significance of what Jesus has to say to them, the ethical imperatives he responds to, the ethical imperatives he gives them in response to their core desires. And the first thing to notice about the Pharisees is that it's the Sabbath day. And the scripture says, they, the lawyers and Pharisees, were watching Jesus carefully because they disapprove of Jesus' Sabbath practices. So the Pharisees are basically on the lookout to see whether Jesus is going to mess up, whether he's going to do something that's going to expose him as a false prophet or a false messiah. And you think that the Pharisees would have a really good pulse on what would constitute a false prophet or false messiah. These are the experts in the law, right? They know their Torah, and they know their messianic prophecies. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, and he's healing there, healing here, and healing there, he's teaching, he's preaching, fulfilling prophecies left and right, you'd think the Pharisees would be the most likely of all people to guess correctly as to the status of God's anointed and whether or not Jesus fits it. But here we get the impression that they are more than a bit skeptical of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. And so it's possible that this man of dropsy that is, is, is surprisingly showing up in this scene, he was probably or, or very likely planted by the Pharisees to, to be basically a, a foil for Jesus. They know if a sick person is there, Jesus is liable, inclined, it's kind of in his nature to heal the person. But the problem is the Pharisees think that healing a person is a work. You're doing work on the Sabbath. And remember, Sabbath keeping and doing work do not mix. And that's what the religious leaders say. And in a sense, they're right. But only if you think that healing someone is a burden to you. And so that says something really interesting about the nature of their hearts. Jesus understands what the Pharisees don't understand. Jesus knows that the purpose of the Sabbath is to serve the interests of people. The Sabbath is meant for human flourishing. The Sabbath is designed to restore our bodies. The Pharisees miss the point of the Sabbath entirely. They think the Sabbath is about not lifting a finger at any cost because God said so or else. So we might cut the Pharisees some slack if they had just never read their Bibles before. Or if they had a mediocre substitute rabbi on the day that he came to talk about the Sabbath. But their misunderstanding is not because of some intellectual deficiency or poor theological training. The Pharisees missed the point of the Sabbath because the mind can only properly understand what the heart properly loves. The Pharisees don't properly love their neighbor. So they can't fathom why Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath. It seems straightforward to Jesus. Of course, you have mercy on a sick person on the day that is set aside by God to show mercy to people. Healing on the Sabbath doesn't compute, however, in the Pharisees' brains because compassion doesn't comport with their hearts. And if there's any doubt remaining as to the character of these Pharisees' hearts, Jesus puts the doubts to bed with one insightful question. He said to them, Which of you, having an oxen, or a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Jesus knows that if their own child or their own property were to fall into a pit on the Sabbath day and they were able to save them, they wouldn't climb out of the pit and say, boy, I really wish 
I didn't have to do that work. They'd be glad that they were able to save their son or save even their ox. But when a stranger is nearby who is ill and needs help, they think, why put in the effort? So verses 1 through 6 inform us about the hearts of the people in this passage. You've got Jesus. His core desire is to uphold the spirit of God's law, which is to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then there's the Pharisees who lack any evidence of real compassion. Their core desire is to uphold a wrong interpretation of God's law for the sake of their own gain and at the expense of others. And last, but most emphatically not least, the man with dropsy. He doesn't say or do anything in this passage, but he represents the demographic of people that in Jesus' day rarely, if ever, got a proper seat at the table. They were not the beneficiaries of compassion, but objects of derision. As representative of this demographic, demographic this man with dropsy, his core desire is to be basically accepted. But his acceptance is socially unacceptable. Now Jesus has something to say about all of that. And this takes us back to the passage, picking up at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So I don't know if you noticed it or not, but there's actually a really interesting shift of tone that takes place in between verses 6 and 7. An invisible shift in tone between those two verses. This dinner party started off with the Pharisees watching Jesus really closely. The Pharisees had marked Jesus as a man under suspicion because they wanted to catch him in improper Sabbath keeping. But now that Jesus has stumped them on that very question in his mic drop moment just a few verses earlier, the Pharisees now have the tables turned on them. They feel like they are now being the ones watched closely. It's like Jesus is saying, yes, I know you were watching me to catch me in a mistake, but take my advice and keep a close watch on yourselves. The scripture says that Jesus, quote, noticed how they chose the places of honor. It's actually stronger in the Greek. It's like he marked and took, like, took a note, like notice, like most literally. He, he took a note in his mind, these men are choosing the places of honor. To appreciate exactly what is Jesus noticing here, this practice uh, of taking the seats of honor. You have to understand that banquet, banquets like this weren't really about feeding the stomach. Banquets like this were about feeding the ego. You have important people at your banquet, and they invite you to theirs. It's about using social standing or literal places of honor as a sort of currency to get a leg up on the social competition. This was true even among the religious leaders, perhaps especially among the religious leaders. So what develops at these social functions is a sophisticated and discreet code of conduct that preserves the appearance of good manners, but is really just a thin veil that is concealing a spirit of competition. The Pharisees and the lawyers see an opportunity at these banquets, and they don't want to waste it. If you want to maintain your position in the religious hierarchy, you better play your cards right at this dinner. Schmooze with the right scribe, make the right promises, and you better keep them. And the first step 
to winning at this game is to sit in the right seat. But we play games like this too now, don't we? You got to make friends with the right influencers if you want get to get in on the inside. You want that promotion. I can get you in on one of those weekly meetings, Bob. I'll make sure Tim is left out. But you just do this one little favor for me, Bob, if you don't mind, in a hundred subtler, more insidious forms of working the system to our advantage and to the disadvantage of other people. This pride in our human nature is what compels Jesus to teach a lesson. And it can be boiled down to this in the first part. A spirit of humility and a spirit of competition cannot coexist. Jesus is inviting the Pharisees and inviting us also to be introspective and assess the quality of our spirit. He's probing our hearts to find out whether we are competing for honor or laying down our pride. He says first, do not sit in a place of honor. Jesus is immediately issuing commands and warnings because he knows how self-defeating and shame-inducing the consequences of choosing your, for yourself the seat of honor are. It's self-defeating because honor is an honor if it's seized. That's opportunism. Honor is only honor if it is given to you. And so that's why Jesus says, do not sit in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. You can choose the seat of honor for yourself and keep it for a time. But as soon as you sit down, the clock starts ticking. Your time in that seat was stolen, if you chose it for yourself, and therefore can be taken from you at any moment. That seat was not yours to reserve. It was the host's. And he has not only the inclination, but the right to give it to anyone he pleases. And you can count on it. He will eventually. One day, a more competent person, a more charismatic leader, or even just a more cunning networker will walk in the room, attract the boss, the teacher, or the host's attention, and displace you. You'll begin the long shuffle of your feet, the long shuffle of shame towards the lowest place. And you'll be kicking yourself because you'll realize at that moment that it would have been better never to have had the high place than to have had it and lost it. So Jesus, because he cares about the Pharisees and because he cares about us, intends to offer us some wiser counsel, a different way of doing things that's actually going to go better for us and even for the Pharisees because he loves us and we, we like to think about that. But he also loves the Pharisees. He wants them to be restored also. When you are invited, he says, go and sit in the lowest place. Without drawing attention to yourself, take the lowest seat or the last seat. Don't make a break for the seat of honor. And what will be your, your reward? Recognition from the host. He will say to you, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. So Jesus is a bit of a sage. He's a wise guy. Jesus has all the wisdom of Solomon and infinitely more. And he's saying some very simple things. First, save yourself the embarrassment of overestimating your reputation. And second, grant your host the pleasure of lifting you up. He'll enjoy the feeling of giving someone a, a, a helping hand. And you'll enjoy the public recognition that comes from that. It's a win for both parties. And the wise understand that the reward of having honor conferred upon you is greater than the reward of taking honor for yourself. Conferral of honor comes with ceremony and public recognition, but to take honor for yourself earns no applause, but only jealousy and ugly looks and eventually demotion. But why would Jesus say this? Is Jesus in the business of giving the Pharisees life hacks. <laughs> Jesus is not in the business of giving life hacks, although he does that by nature of knowing a few things. <laughs> Jesus is on a mission to upend the social conventions of his day, to do the very thing that Luke has been emphasizing, as I mentioned earlier, throughout his entire gospel. Bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. 
because Jesus knows that this whole system of back scratching that the Pharisees depend on for the exchange of their honor is going to crumble if he replaces the incentive to fight for honor with a new incentive to die to honor. The road to honor, according to Jesus, is by the counterintuitive, countercultural, seemingly counterproductive way of humility. But we have to understand this isn't a promise. This is not a promise on earth. It's an observation of a typical feature of life. Like a proverb, in fact, almost identical to Proverbs 25, 6 through 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Here on earth, it's tempting to think that Jesus' advice is going to be true in absolutely all circumstances, for all time, with every king, with every noble, at every workplace, with every boss. And nonetheless, Jesus is not saying that every time you put yourself in a low position, that you will necessarily be elevated to a higher one by the powers that be. This is not Jesus exercising his role as a prophet who's foretelling things with absolute certainty, nor is he saying these things as a king in, in this moment who makes inviolable decrees rewarding the humble. Jesus is speaking as a wise man. Jesus is speaking in this moment as a sage. Sages have keen insight into the universal patterns of reality. And so they're able to make insightful recommendations about living in agreement with these patterns. But think about it. If we believed that this was universally true, we'd be setting ourselves up for failure and we'd soon recognize it. We know intuitively that we are not guaranteed a reward for humility in this world. And if the world, world did always work this way, Jesus wouldn't need to teach us about it because we'd already have figured it out by now. We'd know that humility pays. But in reality, sometimes you take that last seat of humility out of the goodness of your heart and you stay there in disappointment. I think it's really important to stress that for emotional and spiritual reasons. Because what's going to happen when you don't receive honor, when we don't receive honor for our humility in this life? And we don't understand what Jesus is trying to do here. We're going to think that Jesus has lied to us. We're going to say, it didn't happen like you said it would, Jesus. I did what you told me. I took the lowest place. I was humble. I didn't step over anybody to get a promotion. I didn't flatter that leader to get her in good graces. I didn't compromise my morals. I played it by the book, silently, patiently, gracefully. And I have received nothing to show for it. What are we supposed to do with this? This happens to everybody at one point in time. And we may accept that Jesus only means to give us some form of like proverbial wisdom with this instruction. And we're like, okay, it has limited non-universal application. Okay, but that doesn't help me quell my rage when I take the pay cut and get no recognition for it. When I make the big sale, I keep my mouth shut about it, but my coworker takes the credit for it. When I am always the one to stay late after the party and help clean up, and no one ever says thank you for it. You tell me in those moments, well, honor is never a guarantee. And I'm inclined to respond, but Jesus said, take the lowest seat, and you know the rest. And that's why we have to remember what was said above in verse, verse 7. Now, Jesus told a what? Jesus told a parable to those who were invi invited. Now, a parable doesn't necessarily have to be like this long, protracted, multi-part allegory. Okay, we know the parable of the sower and the, the seeds, right? We have different soils. We have four different kinds of soils. That's an example of a parable, yes. It can be very precise and categorized, but sometimes a parable is just a, a basic story or illustration or proverb that has just a double meaning. The first meaning is something that's obvious on the surface, and that's what we see here so far. Jesus is saying, if you start behaving in a humble way, pretty often you're going to start seeing rewards for that. But then there's a second meaning, some other meaning that reveals itself to those who take the time to just meditate on it, 
just to read it. It's not a secret meaning. It's just a meaning that's earned by meditation. And it's that second meaning that I think is important to recognize here. Because if the hope of honor for humility that we willingly do, if that's grounded only in our earthly experience, that's not a lot of firm ground to stand on. I have no control in my life what the banquet host does with my act of service by taking the lower seat. I have no control over my boss or the Instagram influencer who's somehow going to change my life with a re... I was going to say a retweet. Shows what I know. You can't retweet on Instagram. <laughs> Thankfully, the meaning of Jesus' instruction in this passage can't be limited to our earthly experience. In verse 11, proves it. It says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone. That's bold language. That's absolute language. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But we know that's not true always in the here and now. But Jesus makes it seem like a foregone conclusion, and he's unashamed about it. How can he make such a statement? Because Jesus knows that one day, the day of judgment will come, and all injustices will be righted. The humble who suffered for a time here on earth will rejoice in blessing with Jesus for eternity. The proud who reveled for a time here on earth will suffer for eternity apart from Jesus unless they choose Jesus. This is the sort of verse that can respond to questions like, God, why do warlords prosper? And he responds, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. God, why do Ponzi schemers get off with a slap on the wrist? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Why does the unrepentant abuser go unpunished? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Not here on earth necessarily, not now, but in the end, in due time, all will be set right by God for eternity. But if the hope of honor is so often realized not until the day of judgment, why doesn't Jesus just come out and say that? Why doesn't he just say, take the low seat, and I'm going to honor you in heaven, for sure. He seems to like hold out this, like, like dangles out the possibility that there is like some promise of honor on some level here on earth when you behave humbly. And my best guess for why he does that, and I think it's a little more than a guess, it helps our souls to have some practice being rewarded for humility now. God, in his generosity, has designed the world so that we can see the principles of his eternal kingdom play out in miniature and in imperfectly now. And that builds our faith. When by God's grace, I do a humble thing and get rewarded for it, Jesus' promise of eternal justice becomes that much more believable to me. And it encourages me to press on in my self-denial. It encourages me to sow to the spirit of humility, not to the spirit of competition. So now we come to verses 12, and four, 12 through 14. And really, these verses are founded on pretty much the same ethical basis as the previous verses, but it's kind of applied to a different situation. If verses 7 through 11 consist of ethical imperatives to those who have been invited to the banquet, verses 12 through 14 apply to those who are doing the inviting. It says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The virtue that Jesus wants to pinpoint here, it's still centered on humility. But the language of repayment suggests that Jesus is like particularly interested in whatever aspect of humility is expressed in contentment in particular. Jesus wants us to be generous with whatever social capital we have. 
And he wants us to use our position in his kingdom to graft others in. He wants you to use your position, whatever it may be, to benefit those who don't have a position. But if we're going to be so generous, we must have forward thinking and faith-dependent trust. Trust that only comes from a faith in who God is, that somehow we will not have lost anything, any opportunities with people, any social position by giving that social capital away for the sake of others. If we give it to the poor, if we give it to the crippled, if we give it to the lame, we have to trust by doing that, by spending my time with them and not spending my time with other people who can repay me, I'm actually not losing anything. How do you do that? A a generous spirit first has to be a content spirit. And a content spirit can only exist if it knows that it has an abundance. A content spirit has no insecurities about its inheritance. A content spirit is willing to be generous because it is quick to give because it knows that it's never losing anything. It's not a zero-sum game. God is not a zero-sum God. God owns everything. And God can repay you at the resurrection of the just no matter what you give away in time, in position, in honor, in friendships for the sake of those who have none of those things. And one modern day application can be summed up like this. When you host a party, don't make a practice, don't make a habit of inviting only the people who have the social capital to make it worth your invite. Invite those who are tempted, you are tempted, to leave off the list. Maybe you don't know anything about their culture. That's tough. Or maybe they don't know anything about your culture. That's annoying, right? They don't have any cool hobbies, in your opinion. Or whatever it is. You have all these reasons. I don't want to invite this person. Maybe they don't, maybe they're not a good conversationalist. Maybe you're not. Maybe that's the problem. (laughs) Jesus commands us, I'm talking to myself to be honest. Jesus commands us, invite them and you'll be repaid. What's another modern day application? It's more fun to apply to the modern day, right? Because We live in the modern day. It's fun to think about how the Pharisees might have had to apply it because we can kind of point fingers at them and say, that wasn't so good. But another modern day application can be summed up in this way. Invite yourself to the place where all the literally poor people, literally crippled people, lame people, blind people are. Invite yourself. They're not going to come over. That doesn't really work that way anymore in the modern day. But you can invite yourself to go to their places because they're waiting for you. They want to be accepted. They will accept you if you are accepting them. This is why we have Love the Block. This is why we have Unite Phoenix and school supply outreaches. Banner Church is committed by these means to actually obeying these particular commandments of the Lord. So talk to Nick Fink. There he is back. Love the Block, Thursday nights at 6 p.m., Uh, Talk to Stephen Frankie about Unite Phoenix on Saturdays because you'll be repaid. Yes, you'll be repaid now in in the short term with the joy of knowing that you blessed other people. And that's not a small thing. That's a huge thing. But verse 13 says something even better. He says, Jesus says, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When the dead are raised and we all receive our reward— for the things that we have done in this life for Christ, no amount that we have given away for the sake of Christ will truly be lost. It will all be repaid. Our reward for us is secured for us in heaven. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I wonder now, with all this talk of reward, if it seems a little strange to you. Because reward is not something we normally put in the category of good ethics. We're told, even at a young age, well, why do I need to throw away the trash? Why can't I just drop it on the ground? Well, it's the right thing to do. Littering's bad. It's the right thing to do, okay? It might even seem seem a bit selfish to be motivated by compensation for virtuous acts. Shouldn't we be doing good things simply because they are the right thing to do? I would definitely be tempted to say that 
if the language of the Bible was that. But the language of the Bible is very different. And I don't want us to miss how prominent the theme of reward is in the mouth of Jesus as he's teaching. When he commands us to take the lowest place at the banquet, he's unashamed to appeal to our desire for honor. When he commands us to invite those who cannot pay us back, he tells us without reservation or qualification that we will be repaid at the resurrection. This goes to show that God has created each one of us with a mechanism to be motivated by reward. You can't cease being motivated by reward unless you cease being human. You are not a robot who's been programmed to do whatever God has programmed you to do. You have been designed, created by God to do that which is in accordance with your desires. And Jesus is appealing to your desire by saying, I will repay you. You will be recompensed. You will lose nothing. And I say this, even if it doesn't seem clear now, why is this so important? It's a preemptive measure because there's going to come a time when you and I need to guard against, the or against losing the motivation to obey Jesus in these areas. It seems simple. It seems easy. Okay, this person, not on my normal invite list, I'll start adding them. But what happens when you can only invite 15 people and that person's number 16? Mm, well, it didn't work out this time. And that just keeps happening and happening and happening. A sense of duty to be altruistic will not serve you very well when you desperately want the respect you think you deserve but doors to opportunities keep getting slammed in your face. You'll storm past the doors and demand the seat of honor. Or if you don't actually do that because you're not an aggressive personality, you will seethe with envy against the one who grabbed the seat in your place. Eventually you might recover. You're a grown adult, right? You can regulate your emotions. Until it happens again and in a way that you never expected. The insult this time will be too great to bear, and the next time it'll be even greater. And the cycle of anger and envy renews. C.S. Lewis said this about a spirit of competition. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. How will you manage then to reject the spirit of competition unless you have the promise of reward? And that is the first of three things in application. There are three things that God needs to give to you if you are going to put away your pride. You cannot do it in yourself. And the first thing is Jesus' reward. Jesus said in Matthew 19.29, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And in addition to houses and sisters and all that, you can add honor to that list. If you leave worldly honor, the seat of honor, the place of honor for the sake of Jesus' names, Surely you will receive a hundredfold plus eternal life. A hundredfold increase, if you really believe that it's coming to you, will silence the voice of discontentment very easily. The second thing, if firstly you need Jesus' reward, secondly, if you're going to put away your pride, you need Jesus' example. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' example annihilates any sense of entitlement we might have to any seat of honor. How can our entitlement stand if God himself stepped down from his heavenly throne to walk on the dust of the earth with us? How can our entitlement stand if our Lord hung for us on a cross? Those two things won't be enough. If you have reward, if you have an example, those are necessary things, but those are not sufficient things. The third thing that God gives us to put away our pride is Jesus' spirit. Jesus' example, Jesus' reward, and Jesus' spirit. Romans 8, 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. By setting our minds on the Holy Spirit, we give our hearts the perspective and the power we need in order to actually obey. Apart from God's help, we are powerless to have the humble attitude of Christ, but He gives us willingly, overabundantly, the Spirit as our helper and our comforter. Would you stand with me? I want to give you an opportunity in your own position in life, the things you've been given, the, the opportunities you've been given, the capital, whatever that looks like that you have been given to respond with that. And I think there are two kinds of people in this room. But the, the one thing, well, not the one thing, but one of the things, and one of the most important things that binds the two different kinds of people that I'm going to describe in a moment what binds them together is that in the kingdom of God, our position is determined not by the height, our height above others, but by our closeness or our proximity to Jesus. In the kingdom of God, our position is not determined by our height above others, but by our proximity to Jesus. And that applies to the rich and that applies to the poor. Having much is not necessarily a barrier to being close to Jesus. It's not a matter of what you have, but it's a matter of what you do with what you have and who you do it for. It's not a matter of what you don't have. It's a matter of who you go to to have it. Do you go to Jesus to fill that gap? The first group of people are those who feel like in life they are on the outside looking in. They are on the outside of the kingdom. Those who feel like not only do they not have seats of honor, but sometimes it feels like they're not even in the room. And maybe you feel like that man with dropsy. You want basic acceptance. And Jesus offers acceptance. But you have to receive the reward of Jesus himself. It's about being near to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what burdens us so much as the burden of not having what we need to be content? Come to Jesus for the relief of that burden. The second group are those on the inside. The second group are those who have and have an opportunity have an opportunity now not to keep for themselves the capital that they have, but they have a shot at the seat of honor. And with that seat of honor, I encourage you to consider the example of Jesus. 
in Philippians 2. What did he do with the throne of God? He stepped down from it and used his power, used his position, used his glory to glorify others, to serve others. He came to serve, not to be served by men. He willingly stripped himself of his own honor for the sake of serving who? The poor, the lame, the crippled, both literally and figuratively. I'm going to ask both groups to consider the Holy Spirit of Jesus, to reflect on the spirit of unity that binds us all together in the comfort of knowing that our reward, if we are in Christ, is secured for us in heaven. But at the altar, both the haves and the haves not, have nots, both the honored and the dishonored, they are equal at the foot of the cross. The spirit of unity that creates a bond of peace. And so as we sing this song, I want us to reflect on who we are if we have the spirit. If we have the spirit, we are no longer defined by the label of cripple, or by the label of lame, or by the label of blind, or by the label of loser, or boring, or no fun, or lame hobbies. Those are lies from Satan, but Jesus says something different to us if we're in that position. He says, you are accepted, and ex I want you to accept my invitation to sit with me at the table. And those of us who have, and who maybe are flinging those titles, those, those lying titles at others, or who are competing in a spirit of competition for the seat of honor, Jesus is asking us, will you lay down your seat of honor to lift up those who do not have that position? Father God, as we worship together in closing, I pray that you would open our hearts and you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to be introspective honestly. We're not asking to be morbid in our thinking or to assign false motives to our spirit, God. We, we want to know just honestly, just sincerely, are we doing well in the area of competing? And God, if we are, I pray that you would enable us to persevere in that commitment to lay down our rights, our privileges, and our advantages. But God, if you are calling us to expand our network, if you are calling us to lay down what we have to bring in more of others, to share what we have, God, I pray that you'd reveal that to our hearts this morning. Send your Holy Spirit to convict, but not just to convict God, to empower by the Spirit of Jesus, by the example of Jesus, by the promise of reward that Jesus gives us to actually follow through, knowing that we lose nothing if we are giving it for the sake of Jesus. God, I pray we would be content and generous spirits because we know the abundance that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I just encourage you, let's worship together. And the altar is open if you need to pray and, and seek the Lord and how you can apply this to your own life. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.